Do you remember a show called The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? Um, you're about to date yourselves because the younger guys have no idea what I'm talking about. But back in the mid-80s and early 90s, there was this show. It was this guy named Robin Leach, the, I think, British guy with a funny accent, who would give you a tour of the homes of the, like the name says, rich and famous. And so you sat in your living room, and you got this guided tour through the homes of celebrities, right? Actors, athletes, musicians, movie stars, every kind of entertainer, celebrity, rich and famous person there was. And you could sit on your couch in your living room and you got to walk into their front door through every room of their house checking out their stuff. It, the, the show was a great hit because it sort of captured and capitalized on our fascination with celebrities and their stuff. We got to see them and see their stuff. And the tour usually went until it reached the grand finale, which was the master bedroom, right? It was a huge hit. The show ended in 95, but our fascination with the idea still continued. And so in 2000, MTV picked up the idea for a younger generation of viewers in a show called Cribs. Right? You're about to date yourself again because now the older people have no idea what I'm talking about. Right? For you who are culturally illiterate, crib is a slang for home. And so all these celebrities would walk you through their cribs. You would walk in your front door, their front door, sitting on your couch. You got to watch their TV. You got to listen to their stereo, marvel at their furniture as room by room you were guided through their house until again, grand finale, you made it to the master bedroom, the place where they were, right? It was this unbelievable show, a huge hit because we got to see celebrities and we got to see their stuff. And you see, that's what made the show such a huge hit. It's not just that they showed you a random rich house. It's that they showed you the house of someone you knew, a celebrity, and in seeing their stuff, you got to see them, right? You got to see them better by the stuff that they owned. You got a glimpse through their home into themselves, a, a glimpse into who they were. That's what made the show such a hit. Because here's the thing. You can tell a lot about a person by the stuff that fills their house. Let me say that again. You can tell a lot about a person by the furnishings and the furniture, the stuff that fill their house. For example, my guess is if I walked into some of your parents' houses, I would find sofas and couches with the original plastic still on them, right? I had to call my sister to confirm because I thought this was some kind of weird memory, but she told me I was right. I grew up with my parents putting bed sheets on the couches, tucked in tightly to preserve how they would look, right? That tells you, it's just a piece of furniture, but that tells you something about my parents. They're cheap, I mean, uh, uh, thrifty and frugal, right? My parents were not hoping that you would walk into their house and go, wow. My parents were hoping that when you walked in 20 years later, it would still be there, right? In fact, that's how my parents boasted of their stuff. Other people will say, that's how much I paid for that piece. My father would say, that piece is older than you are, right? That's how he boasted in it. Those dressers, that bed is older than you. And I'd be like, Dad, I know I have scoliosis in my back because of it, right? But my father's theory was, listen, if it's not in style today, wait 20 years, it'll all come back around, and it'll be cool then, right? You can tell a lot about a person by the stuff that fills their home, by the furniture that they have. What about you? 
If I were to take a tour through your house, what would your stuff communicate about you? What would I learn through your furnishings and your furniture? What, I wonder, would it communicate to me if I took a tour through your house? If I went to your living room, would I find a small couch firm for good friends to sit with good posture to talk through politics, the economy, current events? Or would I find a big comfy couch where you could watch a movie and fall asleep? Are the couches facing one another for conversation, or are they all pointed to a shrine called the TV, right? If I walked into your living room and I, and I checked out the walls, would I find artwork, photography, abstract, contemporary, modern, or would I find photos, pictures of your children, your wedding day, family vacations? All of that stuff says something. Or would the walls be bare, covered only by paint? If I walked into your family room, would I find an entertainment center with DVDs or bookshelves with books? Would I find a large plasma TV on the wall or a small one with bunny ears? If I walked into your kitchen, would your cabinets be filled with china or plastic plates and, and, and cheap silverware or fine silverware? And if I took a tour all the way to the grand finale, your master bedroom, what would I find? A king-size bed for a dad and a mom with three or four kids, or a twin bed for a single guy or a single gal? Are your clothes tucked neatly into dressers or, and hanging on, on, on uh, hangers, or are they sort of the second layer of your carpet sort of sprawled out on the floor? All of that stuff, it's simple, right? And yet it communicates something about you. Now, of course, it's not a science, but you can tell a lot about a person by the stuff that they own, by the stuff that fills their house. And here's the thing. It is the same way with God. You can tell a lot about God by the stuff that fills his house. You get a glimpse into who God is when you get a glimpse into the furnishings and furniture of his house. You see, in the last part of Exodus, in this final section, Moses is going to act for us like Robin Leach, and he's going to give us a tour through God's house in the Old Covenant, this house called the Tabernacle. And as you tour through the Tabernacle and as you check out God's stuff, you begin to see better who God is. It tells you something about him. It, it reveals who he is by just looking at his stuff. We began this final section of Exodus with this incredible statement, God is coming, and he's coming to dwell among his people. And we said that raised a number of questions. Last week, the first question was, if he's coming, where is he going to dwell? And we saw last week, he's going to have the people build him a house called the tabernacle. And this week, we're saying, if we know God is coming and we know where he's going to live, what's going to go in his house? What's he going to furnish his house with And what do we learn about him through the stuff that he fills his house with? Okay? What I'm hoping we see together is that the tabernacle, God's house, and its furniture and its furnishings is not something that God has discarded as meaningless, but something rather that he has gloriously fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. The tabernacle and all its furniture and its furnishings is not something that God has discarded as ancient, primitive, meaningless, but rather something that he has gloriously fulfilled 
in Jesus Christ. We'll pray, and then we'll tour through the tabernacle together. Our God, we thank you for your word, the passages and parts that are easy and the passages and parts that are hard and difficult. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would by them cause us to pause long enough to have to press in deeper, that if we're going to know God, the, the one who cannot be fathomed, we're going to have to press in deep, take our time, be slow, understand. We pray that the Holy Spirit would even now illuminate your word like a bright light into our hearts and, and illuminate the places that are dark, that your word would come like a hammer and, and break up the hard ground, that it would come like medicine and heal, that, that by your word we might be drawn to Christ and saved. Open your word to us today, and as you do, open us to your word. And let the collision of those two things result in your glory and great good for us. Hear our prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's begin our tour. I want you to use your imagination. I want you to let your mind's eye picture these things with me. If you have a Bible, we're going to be jumping around between Exodus 25 and Exodus 30 because these furniture pieces and furnishings and the different rooms of God's house are scattered across these five chapters, chapters 25 through 30. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to step out of your tent. If you were one of the people of Israel, you would be living in a tent. And I want you to walk slowly with me to the big tent in the very middle of the camp. All the other tents are lined up around this one, so you're stepping out of yours, and you're approaching with me God's tabernacle, the very big, large tent in the middle of the camp. When you get there, the very first thing that you notice is that there's this seven-and-a-half-foot-high wall all the way around. You can't just simply walk into this house. You probably got out of your tent thinking you could just walk right into God's house, waltz right into his holy tent, the tent of meeting. But the first thing that you encounter is this seven and a half foot high wall all around the entire compound. And within that compound is the tent. But you can't simply just get in. It's almost as if the first thing you realize is there's a barrier between you and God, and you can't simply waltz into his presence. For a moment, it almost seems like there's no way in until you make your way to the eastern side, and there it is, the one and only entrance by which you go in. So you find the eastern side, you walk in through the entrance, and you think for a moment that you're going to walk straight into God's tent, into his house, into his dwelling, and when you walk in, you're immediately met by the first of God's many furnitures. One very large furniture stands in your way, almost stopping you in your tracks as you tour into God's house. It's in Exodus 27, the first eight verses. If you go there, you'll read that when you go into the tabernacle compound, the first thing that you see is a bronze altar. You think you're going to walk all the way into God's house, and the very first thing that stops you is a bronze altar. There it stands, seven and a half feet square, four and a half feet deep, covered on every side in bronze. This is the place where, as soon as you enter, animals would have been sacrificed here. Bulls and goats and lambs would have been slain and slaughtered here, offered as a sacrifice 
to God. So here's the question. Why is an altar the very first thing as soon as you walk into God's house that you see? Why is it the first stop along our tour? One pastor likens this to a doormat. When you're getting ready to go into someone's house, you're ready to just waltz right in. But what happens when you see a doormat right in front of the door? Immediately, you realize there's something you've got to do before you step in. Immediately, there's dirt on your feet you've got to wipe off before you go in. You're ready to just walk in, and yet the doormat literally stops you in your tracks and says, there's something you've got to deal with before you go any further. There's dirt you've got to get rid of before you press in. Well, the bronze altar stands like this giant doormat at God's house, almost stopping you in your tracks saying, listen, before you go any further, there's dirt you need to deal with. And the scriptures, the Bible calls that dirt sin. And the Bible is saying to you, before you press in and approach God, there's sin that first has to be dealt with. There's sin that there's dirt, there's filth that has to first be taken care of if you're going to approach God. And so for the very first thing that God's furniture and furnishings tell us is that we can't approach God because he's holy and we have sin. For any who would take this trek into God's house, first an animal had to be sacrificed. You had to grab a bull or a lamb or a goat and you had to cut its throat and let its blood pour out. Why? Because God is some kind of barbaric, bloodthirsty, primitive God? No. Because you were taking this animal and holding it by its horns and you were saying, God, I know that it should be my blood that runs. I know I deserve this punishment. And yet, would you take out your wrath on this substitute in my place for my sins? Would you let it die rather than me that I could press on further? And so before you went any further... A sacrifice was required. We cannot come to God apart from sacrifice. Here's what I want you to hear. Just like the stuff in your house tells us something about you, the stuff in God's house tells us something about him. And the first thing that we learn is that God is holy, and we cannot come to him apart from a sacrifice. And yet the bronze altar stands there as a reminder that God is gracious because the tour need not end there. He's provided a way. He will accept a sacrifice. In fact, he gave this furniture, furnishing, to his people to say to them, you can keep coming in because I will accept a sacrifice in your place. The bronze altar shouts to us, God is holy and you need a sacrifice to approach him. Okay, now if you were an ordinary person, just your average run-in-the-mill guy, just a commoner in Israel, this is where your tour ended. You were forced off the tour bus, you were at to hop off, because beyond this, you could not go. This is literally as close to God as you're going to get. You got into the high walls, into the tabernacle, you got to offer a sacrifice at the bronze altar, and you were done. Beyond that... You could not go. No commoner, no ordinary person, you and I, would never be, on, be permitted beyond that point. But fortunately for us, in Exodus 30, verses 17 to 21, Moses has sort of a special access pass for us. He gets us in because he gives us the pass of the priests. 
because the priests were allowed to go a little further in. And so with the priests then, you leave the commoners behind at the bronze altar and you walk a little further in. And now you're ready to march right into the holy tent. And again, you don't make it very far because you're stopped by another piece of furniture along the way. The tour takes another pause because there's another thing, another barrier almost standing between you and the holy tent. Standing between the bronze altar you just passed and the holy tent in front of you is a bronze basin of water. Here the priests were required to stop and wash their hands and wash their feet before they could even think about pressing in any further or approaching God. You find this bronze basin in Exodus 30. In fact, I want you to hear how serious this was to God. This was no, you know, take it or leave it kind of ritual. Just hear how seriously God takes this whole thing. Chapter 30, verse 18. Let me read it for you. You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, hear this, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. 21. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. God is not playing. God is not kidding. God is deadly serious. That if the priests were to go any further, they had to stop at this bronze basin and wash their hands and wash their feet. Why? Throughout the Old Covenant, throughout the Old Testament, this Washing, ceremonial washing was always this symbolism that just as you were being cleansed outwardly, your heart and your inside needed to be cleansed inwardly. And so just like the bronze altar stops you in your tracks and says, there's sin you've got to deal with, so the bronze basin likewise stops you in your track and says, there's filth, there's dirt that must be cleansed before you get any closer to the Lord. If we're going to approach the Lord, we need to be cleansed. Here's what's interesting about this for a second. It's one thing for us to get that the commoners, the average people, needed to stop at the bronze altar to give a sacrifice. You'd imagine if there's going to be any people in Israel who get to waltz right into God's house, it'd be the priests. You'd imagine if there's any class of people that has a special access to the Lord, it'd be the priests. If any who could enter into his house, it would be the priests. And yet even they must stand by this basin and wash to be cleansed. Even they, the very ones that God would use to make atonement, that word that meant at one with God, even they who God would use to make atonement for the people needed atonement for themselves. Even this class of people that God was going to use to give cleansing to God's people needed first to be cleansed themselves. Even they could not simply enter into God's presence. And so again, just like the stuff of your house tells us something about you, the stuff of God's house tells us something about him. And what it tells us is that God is holy. And none of us, not even the best of us, not even the most religious of us, not the people nor the priests, not the pastor nor the parishioners are good enough to get to God. 
They must all be cleansed. And here it is again, just like God provided the bronze altar to say, but I'll accept a sacrifice so the tour need not end. So also here, God says the tour need not end because I will cleanse. And the bronze basin shouts to us, God is holy and we must be clean and cleansed to approach him. So then you've gotten past the outer court, past the bronze altar, past then the bronze basin, and now you are finally ready to enter into the actual tabernacle, into the holy tent itself. You slowly and carefully walk in through the curtains, and now with that step, you've gone beyond the courtyard, and you are now standing in the holy place. Exodus 25, verses 10 to 40, and Exodus 30, verses 1 to 10, tell us that you see three things as you stand in the room. As you stand there in the holy place, you look to your left, and there is this lampstand, this lamp. Except this is no Walmart, Ikea lamp. This thing is ornate. This thing is decked out. This thing is covered in gold. It's got six branches. It's got buds and flowers on it crafted in. It almost looks more like a tree than it does a lamp, like a tree of life and light in the middle of God's house. And there it stands. And every day, every single day without fail, morning and evening, the priest would have went in to pour in new oil to replace the old one and to put in new wicks to replace the old ones. And morning and night, this lamp was to light ceaselessly to provide light for God's house and God's people, a light so that they would not be in darkness. You look over to your right, and in this holy place, there's a, temp a table Again, no ordinary table. This one is also covered in gold. And on this table, you would have found loaves of bread. And, and in fact, 12 loaves, to be precise, in two rows. And this bread was always to be on the table. There was never to be a moment where there was not bread on the table. In fact, every Sabbath, a priest would come and eat these loaves of bread and replace it with new ones. And that happened every week, every single Sabbath. He'd eat the bread and replace it with new ones. And if you asked the priest about this bread, he would tell you that it was called the bread of God's presence. The bread was to remain there continuously, ceaselessly, as a symbol of God's presence that remained with his people continuously and ceaselessly. Just as this bread was always going to be there, so God's presence was always going to be with his people. He'd go on to tell you that bread has so much symbolism. In fact, if you talk about the basic necessity of a human being, it's bread, right? We even say it in our day, bread and water. That's all we'd need to live. And so the idea was this symbolized that our needs were always before God in his presence and that his presence would be sufficient to always meet our needs, there was great symbolism, great promise in this table, in this bread, that God was here and that God saw our needs and would lavishly meet our needs with his own presence. And our needs were always before him and he was always with us to meet those needs. Those promises, that covenant 
was all symbolized in this table and this bread. And you almost wonder for a second, how could God attach so much significance, so much promise, so much covenant to a simple crumb of bread that when you eat from the table, all these things are reminded and received and refreshed and renewed? Why would God attach so much significance to a crumb of bread? But you don't have time to think through all of that because the tour continues. On your left is the lampstand. On your right is the table. Before you is another altar. Only this one is much smaller than the one that you first saw. This one is covered in gold. This one is just a foot and a half square, three feet high. And here, it's not animals that are being burned, but incense is being burned day and night. It's the golden altar of incense. And this incense was so important that its ingredients were this special blend, this perfect mixture, and God literally copyrighted that recipe and told Israel, if anyone makes this, if anyone even makes a knockoff version of it, they are cut off from my people, kicked out of the camp. This incense was reserved for God alone, and it was burned on this altar, and it was supposed to go up and remind the people of their own prayers and worship that went up to the Lord. And do you know the coals on which this incense would burn? Do you know where it came from? Way back out in the bronze altar, the same coals that were used there were brought into the holy place to light the incense, almost as if to say, before God will receive worship or prayer from his people, a sacrifice was needed. The right sacrifice was needed for God's people to offer prayers and worship to him. And there you are, you stand there, and you step back for a second, and you take it all in. You look left, and there's the lampstand. You look right, and there's the table. You look in front of you, and there is the altar of incense. And that's when you notice everything in this room is gold. That's when you notice everything here is pure gold. And that's when you realize there's this drastic difference between the courtyard you left and this room that you've entered into. The dirt floor and the bronze back there is very different than everything beaming and shining with gold in here. And you begin to realize you're not in an ordinary house. This is no ordinary crib. This is, this is like a palace for a king, for someone rich and famous, a celebrity of the greatest sort. You are standing in a palace in God's holy place. And there's only one more room left on the tour, one more thing left to see, right? Like Robin Leach, Moses is going to lead you now to the grand finale, if you want to say it, God's master bedroom, the place where God dwells, his throne room, the holy of holies. Now, we said, if you were an ordinary person, your tour ended way back outside by the bronze altar. If you were a priest, you were permitted to go a little further, but now your tour also ended because beyond this, no ordinary priest could ever go. You could go wash your hands at the bronze basin. You could go into the holy tent and light the lamps in the holy place. You could eat the bread of the presence. You could even offer incense at the burning and golden altar. But beyond that, you could never go. That was as close to God 
as you were ever going to get. But fortunately for us, in Exodus 25, in verses 10 to 22, Moses has one more pass for us. And this is the backstage pass of all backstage passes. Because once a year, a high priest, one time, for one day, one man was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. Inches away from that, that golden altar where you offered incense was God's throne room, the Holy of Holies. And there was this thick curtain, this veil that stood in the way. So no one could sort of peek in. No one knew what was behind, behind there, right? For, except for one man, once a year, one time, on one day, the rest of Israel, the millions and millions of people spent their whole lives, lived and died without ever knowing what was beyond that room, what was in there, without ever seeing it, without ever standing actually in God's presence. Except for one man, once a year, on one day, one time, could step for a brief moment into the Holy of Holies. So then with me, come to the last room. With the high priest, step very slowly, very carefully, very cautiously through the thick veil, through the curtain, and stand in the Holy of Holies. When you stand in there, the room is dark. There's no lamp to light the place. There's no table. There's no altar. There, there's none of it. But in the middle of the room stood this one box, a golden chest. In there was called the Ark of the Covenant. And it was the piece of furniture that was the most sacred and most holy among them all. In fact, we started this tour sort of from the outside in. But that's not the way Moses writes it in Exodus. Moses, in chapter 25, starts with the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, he talks about the Ark before he even talks about the tabernacle or any other piece of furniture. In order to highlight, this is the most important one. This is what all the other rooms are for. This is what all the other furniture is pointing you to, the Ark of the Covenant. It was this golden box, this golden chest. You would have found on it these rings with these permanent poles placed in so that if you had to move this box, no one would ever have to touch it themselves. They could carry the poles. Because if your sinful fingers so much as touched the box, you were dead. And that's not an exaggeration. It literally happens. A man reaches out to touch the box and drops dead. So holy, so sacred was this possession for God's people. Above the ark were these two golden cherubim that had its wings lifted almost to the heavens, but its face downward. Just like in heaven, the angels would have surrounded God and worshipped him, but not looked directly at him. So also the cherubim hid their face from him. And if the Holy of Holies was the throne room of God, the scriptures tell us the ark was his throne. It was where God came down to meet with his people. But here's the thing. What made the ark so special was not just how it was crafted or what it was made of. What made the ark so special is what it contained, what was held in it, what was housed within it. Within this chest, within the ark of the covenant, was God's covenant. 
God's law, the Ten Commandments, the things that we had talked through in Exodus 19 and 20 and 24, that was written and put into the Ark of the Covenant. And so this chest, this box, represented God's law, God's moral perfection, God's righteous requirements, God's holiness was represented in this box. And once a year, on what was called Yom Kippur, and that just means the day Yom Kippur of atonement, on the day of atonement, the priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. Hear me. He would offer a sacrifice way back in the bronze altar, carry a basin of blood into the holy place, past the veil, into the most holy place, and he would stand there with a basin of blood before God's presence. Literally inches away, God was there. And he would stand, and you could picture him sort of knees knocking as he stood inches away from the ark which held God's law. The law that he and his people had spent their whole lives and that week and that day breaking. Here was within that box all that God required, all that they promised they would do. Everything this priest had said, I'm in, I'll do it. And here it was standing inches from him and he had broken everything God had said. If that box could speak, it would literally scream out, guilty. This priest is standing there. He's broken all these laws. He's inches away from God, inches away from the box. That box would have shouted, guilty. And if the only thing that that box had was the law, what hope would that man have? What hope would the people have? What hope would we have? And yet the scriptures tell us that there was one other piece to the ark. There was this cover, this solid gold lid, and it was called the atonement cover. It was called the mercy seat. It was to represent the place of God's mercy, the seat of God's mercy. And if the ark shouted to the priest, guilty, that cover would shout louder, mercy. You see, what the priest would do, he would take that basin of blood that he was holding and he would sprinkle that cover with blood. He would throw out blood onto the mercy cover, onto the atonement cover, onto the mercy seat. And if God's law was there, it was covered by God's mercy. The box that contained God's requirements was covered by God's atonement, so that when God came to dwell among his people and came down before he saw the law and their breaking of it, he saw the mercy and the blood shed on the mercy seat. You picture that. God coming down to look at your life and before he sees the law and all your breaking of it, hovering above you is God's mercy the blood shed and poured out onto the mercy seat. If God's law is there, it's housed within and contained within God's mercy. And the two exist together in tension forever. Here's God's law, and here's God's mercy. And again, just like the stuff in your house tells us something about you, God's stuff tells us about him. And what it tells us is that God is holy. And we can't approach him in our sin. We need mercy. But again, God provides, just like the bronze altar and the bronze basin, so now God provides mercy so that the tour need not end. If we're going to approach God, 
we need mercy. God is holy, and if we're going to approach him, we need a sacrifice. God is holy, and if we're going to approach him, we need to be cleansed. God is holy, if we're going to approach him, we need mercy. And here's the glorious good news. God has provided all three. He's provided a sacrifice. He's provided cleansing. He's provided mercy. And with that, you come to the end of the tour. You've seen everything there is in the tabernacle. You've seen its rooms, and you've seen its furniture and its furnishings. And I hope, here's the thing, I hope that as you were hearing that, your mind was already racing forward to the New Testament and to Jesus. I hope as we were stopping along every way, your heart was saying, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. That was fulfilled in Jesus. That was met by Jesus. That was accomplished by Jesus. I hope your heart was already going forward and saying, what we needed was Jesus. Again, the tabernacle is not something that God has discarded as a relic of the past, but something that God has gloriously fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's every detail, it's every piece fulfilled in Christ. Hear me. When you came to church today, when you came to meet with God, to the place where God dwells, to the people among whom he dwells, when you came through those back doors, you didn't stop at a bronze altar. You didn't do it not because God is just tired with all this primitive stuff or he's changed his laws or his requirements. You didn't do it. You didn't sacrifice a bull. You didn't slaughter a goat. You didn't stop back there because Jesus is the sacrifice. He is the one who was led like a lamb to the slaughter to be slain for his people. He's the one we hold on to and say, God, I know I deserve death. Would you shed his blood in my place for my sins and receive him as a substitute for me? And because he is the sacrifice, you press in and keep going. When you came to church today, you did not stop at a bronze basin and wash your hands and wash your feet. Not because God's discarded those things and changed his laws. You didn't do it because Jesus has now cleansed you better than water ever could. In fact, you would run out of water. The oceans would not be enough water to remove the filth and dirt of your life. The filth of what you've thought. The filth of what you've done. The filth of what you've said. The filth that covers you. And yet Jesus' blood cleanses you clean. Though your sins are like scarlet, the scriptures say, you shall be as white as snow. Jesus cleanses his people. When you came to church today, you didn't stop by and light a lamp. You didn't stand and eat at a table of God's presence. You didn't burn coals of incense. You didn't do it. You didn't do it because Jesus said to his people, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You're not groping in the darkness, wondering where God is, because God has come into your soul, you who have trusted in Christ, through the Spirit and illuminated your life and shown you God so that you live in light. When you come to the table, as you will in a few minutes, you come to this crumb of bread and you wonder, how could God attach so much significance to that piece of bread? You do it all over again. Because at this table, not made of gold, and this bread points you to God's promises. He's always present. 
He's met your every need. In fact, your greatest need for salvation, he met. And as you eat this crumb of bread, you remember God's covenant and his promises and his provision for your every and your greatest need. You didn't concoct the perfect mixture of incense and hope that it would be a pleasing smell to the Lord. No, you stood and sang your songs and prayed your prayers, imperfect though they may be, because you've already been welcomed by Jesus. And now you don't need a perfect mixture to go up to the Lord. You offer your imperfect prayers and he hears them. You offer your imperfect worship and he receives them. You didn't come to church today and stand behind a veil or a curtain. You didn't do it because the Bible tells us that when Jesus died, literally the temple veil was torn in two. For the first time, the Holy of Holies, which no person had ever seen, was now exposed for everyone, sort of like a path was opened so that all men could approach God. So that this, this veil was torn, not so that one man at one time could go in, but that all men for all time could now approach God. The, the writer of Hebrews, hear what he says when he thinks about this moment. He says in 10 verse 19, just hear these verses. Therefore, brothers, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you hear what he's saying? He captures it all right there. He says, listen, you now have confidence to enter into the most holy place. And you're not standing here, each of you, with a basin of bull's blood, hoping to throw it to God. You've come in by the blood of Jesus, the better blood that speaks a better word. And, and you haven't come trying to make your way through the veil. It says, his body was torn. And that tearing of his body and flesh was the tearing of the veil. And he's opened a good and perfect way. And not that you cleanse yourselves by a basin, but he has washed you and washed your guilty conscience and washed your bodies pure. And you didn't come to church today and you did not sprinkle blood on a mercy seat. You didn't do it because Hebrews 2.17, Romans 3.25, 1 John 4.10 all talk about Jesus' sacrifice using the same word that was used about the mercy seat. That just like sacrifices were thrown onto the mercy seat, so Jesus was sacrificed for you. And Jesus' blood shouts louder than the law. If you stood before the ark, that box would have shouted guilty, and yet Jesus' blood shouts mercy even louder. God have mercy on me. Jesus is now. His cross, his body, his blood is your mercy seat. Remember Jesus told a story of a tax collector who went into the temple to pray. And he couldn't even look to heaven because he felt so guilty for his sins. He just beat his chest and looked down. And he said to the Lord, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. In the original translation, what he's really saying, he's standing in the temple, feet away from the Ark of the Covenant. What he's really saying is, God, 
be mercy seated to me, the sinner. He knows enough that he's standing there and what he needs is God be mercy seated to me, the sinner. One pastor said he wakes up every morning praying that prayer, that I am a sinner under a holy God covered by the mercy seat. Right? If you have a holy God and my breaking of the law, the only hope we have is that there's mercy in between. That when he looks down before he sees me and my breaking of the law, there is a mercy and blood shed over me, covering me in atonement. The tabernacle is not something God has discarded, but something that at every point, with every detail, with every piece, God is gloriously fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So hear me. How have you come to church this morning? Some of you come, as you do every week, careless and cavalier. You waltz in here as though it's just another part of your religion. It's just another Sunday morning. It's just another box to check, another thing to do. Would you allow the tabernacle and its furnishings to stop you in your tracks and say, God is holy. You do not just come in. You need a sacrifice. You need cleansing. You need mercy. God is holy. And would you allow these things to stop you in your tracks and say, You are sinful, God is holy. And allow it to humble you and that you might run to Christ. Others of you, you come to church this morning and you feel condemned and you come here cowardly. You're not careless and casual and cavalier. You feel condemned and and cowardly. You crawl in and creep in because you can't imagine that God would welcome you here. Would you let the tabernacle and its furnishings and its furniture remind you, God is gracious. He provided a sacrifice in your place. He provided cleansing for your worst sins. He provided mercy over your guilt so that in Christ you might truly come to him. Let's pray.